Welcome to Storytelling for Impact, the podcast about people who tell stories that change the world. I'm Susanna Birkwood, an international journalist and NGO communications professional with over a decade's experience working for some of the world's best known media and nonprofit organizations. episode we speak to Ian Overton who runs the London-based charity Action on Armed Violence and is an award-winning investigative journalist who's worked in over 80 countries around the world. Ian's reported from the killing zones of Colombia, Iraq and Somalia. He's been held at gunpoint numerous times and has interviewed everyone from porn stars to gangland killers in El Salvador. His films have been broadcast by the likes of the BBC and Al Jazeera, while his articles have featured in The Guardian, The Sunday Times and a host of international outlets. Ian was founding editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism here in the UK, where he worked with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to uncover the real and uncensored story of the war in Iraq. He's also a lecturer in human rights investigations at UK universities, as well as being the author of two books, the latest of which, The Price of Paradise, he has generously offered to give away to one lucky listener. It's beyond dispute that Ian has had an exceptional career in journalism, and he's seen and experienced more than 99% of people you'll ever meet. He does, in this interview, share several very entertaining stories about some of the crazy situations that he's found himself in. But the main focus of our interview is actually the impacts on the world that he's been able to have through his journalism. And we also look at whether journalism is the best route for young people wanting to maximise the good that they can do with their career. I'm grateful to Ian for being so open and honest in this interview. He spoke about the futility and hopelessness it's so easy to feel if you spend many years reporting on human rights. He said, for example, that he used to do stand-up comedy when he was younger but now he feels so weighed down by what he's witnessed through his work that he feels like he's lost some of the lightness of his youth. There was also in this episode much of the hope and determination you'd expect of a man who's achieved as much as he has, including concrete examples of positive impact his work has had across the globe. It was such a privilege and an inspiration actually to get this insight into his world. Hi Ian, welcome to Storytelling for Impact. How are you? I'm good, thanks for having me on. It's surreal to speak to you, I have to say, as I've just finished not only reading your book, Gun Baby Gun, but it was listening to the audiobook. So you've been playing in my ears for a few days now. <laughs> I, I was uh, locked in uh, a, basic, a tiny room uh, with a company called Isis, which um, I'm sure, uh, given the recent history of that name, uh, it was it was an Oxford based company, and I was recording my own voice, and and it's very disconcerting doing a a, a an audio book of a book you've just had published because um, you know you're on page 110 and you're suddenly reading an, a one chapter and you're thinking I could have written that sentence a bit better or oh I forgot to include this or or sometimes you even forget what you have written because you know in when it, uh, over a period of a book you can. Uh, forget certain sections and uh, so it, it was a constant revelation I'm not sure it was uh, um, a pleasurable experience because uh, reading out 
uh, your own words endlessly uh, seems a little bit self-centered. But uh, I how long did that process it. actually take? Because it's something like a 12 hour recording. How long does it take to record a book that long? It took three days and probably 17 liters of water. I, I, I was drinking constantly. It was a I was so dehydrated and my mouth kept on drying up, but it was um, it was quite an experience. It, for my second book, which was about um, suicide bombers, The Price of Paradise, um, they I, I, that was also turned into an audio book, but uh, they've got an, an American actor to voice it. Ah, well, I did enjoy the accents that you used throughout the book, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Having just read most of Come Baby Gun, I can see that you have been held up at gunpoint three times, or at least you had up to 2015 when the book was published. Has that happened again since then? I was detained by Hezbollah, the now uh, prescribed terrorist organisation, when I was doing a report in Lebanon for my second book, which is called The Price of Paradise, how the suicide bomber shaped the modern world. And I was in Lebanon looking at historic cases of suicide attacks because it was in the crucible of the events um, leading up to and, and following uh, the Lebanese civil war and also the Israeli occupation of Lebanon where suicide bombers began to really proliferate in the Middle East. And I wanted to go to one location where a relatively recent suicide bomber had occurred in Beirut and a subsection of Beirut is, is pretty much occupied by uh, Hezbollah. And of course, in the in the European imagination of Hezbollah, we, we kind of think of things like Terry Waite and um, the imprisonment of of envoys, and um, you know they are they are and have been very brutal in the past. And when I was trying to take photographs of this location in their terrain where a suicide bomber had struck, and there were burn marks on the road, and I was interviewing a tomato seller who had been hurt by around fifteen pieces of shrapnel. Um, this uh, very hairy man came up to me with an AK-47 and we were quickly ushered into a, a, a kind of a derelict stadium and we were held there at gunpoint for the um, better part of two hours. Uh, I wouldn't really say that that was in the sort of same vein as some of my previous uh, moments of, of extreme violence where I've been held up. So I've often had guns pointed at me, whether it was in Somalia by sort of young boys with guns all the way through to um, being arrested in Fiji by an armed officer, being arrested in Cambodia being an, by an armed officer. So, you know, I've certainly had my limited freedom taken away from me momentarily by men with guns, always men. Uh, but um, I haven't really been held up exquisitely since, uh, since the last time. I think possibly um, as you get older, um, and are more accustomed to going to conflict zones, you you generally tend not to uh, be as free and easy with your safety as I as you once were, as you get more responsibilities. Um, although I, I did, around five years ago, I was in Colombia, in, in Bogota, and um, I spoke to the doorman about where I shouldn't go uh, after leaving the hotel, and he said, whatever you do, do not turn right. And the journalist in me immediately turned right and walked into possibly the most impoverished part of um, Bogota. And I, I found myself there. I think I just wanted to look at what the, 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 the sort of barrios, the slums of Bogota were like. Um, and I 
um, realised possibly I had taken too much of a right turn when um, this semi-naked transsexual or transgender prostitute or, or streetwalker uh, started throwing bottles at me because uh, they were very drunk, calling me a, a filthy gringo because um, I had sort of wandered into an area that, that clearly was sort of a trucker's paradise and um, there were lots of open bars and um, sex workers on the street and it was it was very gritty, which makes for really nice pictures, but um, sometimes you think, you know, I really... I really should measure my own safety consciousness. But generally speaking, I think um, since since writing Gun Baby Gun, I, I haven't been to that many areas where gun violence is so prevalent, uh, which is places like Central and South America, and more focused on where explosive violence is very prevalent, such as the Middle East. And uh, the the prevalence of guns in Latin America means that it's you're far more likely to be held up at gunpoint there than you are in the Middle East. It's, it's not a perennial problem in the Middle East. The Middle East is more of a problem of the inadvertent blowing up of your hotel. Yeah, you'll be interested to know that I actually lived in San Pedro Sula for a couple of months in the middle of my university degree. That's fascinating. How did you find it? I found it a really interesting place, but the people were definitely marked by the constant violence around them. I remember vividly going to little businesses like the local hairdressers and finding the doors were locked and there were there were bars on the window and you had to knock on the door in order to get in. There was that level of caution about kind of interacting with any strangers. Um, but that was back in 2008. So the situation did definitely deteriorate since then. Um, I saw a tweet of yours the other day. It said that you were meant to be in Ukraine about now, reporting on the Russian oppression of Ukrainian journalists. You're obviously not there. Uh, I think you said that you'll be going soon, hopefully. Has COVID-19 had a big effect on your work over the past year? It's interesting. I'm, on this Friday, actually, I'm, I've, I called up the Foreign Press Association and suggested we have a forum on exactly this, conflict reporting in an age of pandemic. Um, and hearing about how different conflict reporters have had their their time uh, curtailed. And I haven't really travelled for a year, um, which is incredibly unusual for me. Um, Partly that's um, out of uh, health considerations, um, because obviously um, a lot of the places where you may find exquisite levels of armed violence and conflict, you're you're not going to really find decent medical support. So if, heaven forbid... You, you developed some some very serious COVID issues. Uh, you could be stuck out somewhere for a long period of time without decent support. Um, but it was also a, a concern, an ethical concern, that you could in yourself be a carrier of a virus. Uh, and I didn't really want to have that on my conscience, that on top of the pain and misery of conflict, there was me being, uh, you know, somebody who's spreading a virus, so I think that, that both of those reasons meant that I, I haven't travelled, but I have been given some funding to go to eastern Ukraine, where I've been a number of times. Uh, this time is to look at the sort of persecution uh, and attempts to silence Ukrainian journalists by the Russian state. Um, previous attempts, uh, previous journeys to eastern Ukraine by me have been to th- do things like cover the impact of, of the 
uh, slow burning war down there on things like hospitals and, and doctors and uh, the impact on medical services. Uh, it, it's an interesting uh, conflict to go to Ukraine insofar as it's um, not the, 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 there's the veneer of, of European civilization there. You know, you, people are white. You, uh, uh, even though there's a sort of post-Soviet feel to it, Ukraine is very much trying to embrace Western Europe and they want to have as many ties as possible. Um, and it, it, it's, a, it's profoundly upsetting as a conflict because it's considered the world's oldest conflict um, in terms of the population. So I, I've interviewed lots of refugees who are in their 80s and 90s there. And, um, you know, their entire lives have been turned upside down in, in, in their third age. And it's, it's profoundly traumatic seeing 85-year-old refugees shuffling across a border, uh, which isn't the face of conflict in African states or Middle Eastern states where you're, you're really impressed by just how many young people there are. Mm. What has this meant that you're doing instead over the past year? You haven't been able to travel as, as you normally would. Where has that left your focus? I've done some really deep dives. Uh, so, in fact, uh, today or tomorrow, it was kind of knocked off the news perch by um, the sad passing of Prince Philip. Uh, but we, I've done a massive review of the almost 150 people who were killed in London in 2019. And we've looked at every single case and looked at the outcomes of those cases in terms of the judicial process. Um, to find trends and patterns in how justice may be applied in the application of or in, in homicides and killings in London. It was one of London's, if not London's, deadliest year on record. And um, we found, for instance, that young black men who were shot, their killers were least likely to be found uh, 18 months on. Uh, whereas... Um, middle-aged white women who were murdered were most likely to be murdered by their husbands and their husbands would invariably be arrested and tried. So we were just looking at trends and outcomes of legal, legal patterns. Um, other stories which I've run in, it's been very data focused. So we've looked at UK armed policemen, for instance, and we found that 0.2% of all of UK's armed policemen are black. Um, even though around 40% of all people shot by UK armed policemen are black. So we were looking at um, potential structural challenges of, of institutional imbalance when it comes to race in the police. Um, and another story which we're just coming out with in a couple of weeks um, is just looking at the number of children killed in airstrikes in Afghanistan, which is led by the US-led coalition. And we found around 800 children killed and a further 800 children wounded in Afghanistan in the last five years or there, thereabouts. So our work really has been very data-driven, um, which what is always been a perennial focus of the work that I've done. But what I've tried in the past to do is get the data and then travel to the location and then get the human interest stories. So this is data which is without the human interest stories to some degree, which mm. is is challenging. Um, it's okay for a year. If this pandemic continued for much longer, 
I pro well, I've now got my first shot of the vaccine. So I would be more inclined to start traveling to try and pick up the human interest story further on. Now, this might seem like a flippant question, but I'd like a serious answer, if you will. Now, you've you've published two books. You have two degrees from Cambridge. You've worked for the BBC and ITN. You're a university lecturer. You've run numerous awards and you head up a charity. What are you not good at? <laughs> um, staying still. <laughs> that would be a flippant answer. Um, I mean, it, it's... I, I guess that there's always a price you pay with having lots of focus. Um, you know, I, I possibly have not cultivated friendships or relationships in in as deep a way as some other people. Um, I mean, I've got very good friends, but uh, I'm sure some people have very close networks. And if you're constantly traveling and constantly being overseas, there is that toll um, that you, you don't necessarily have. Um, definitely, that definitely resonates with me as well, um, as someone that's lived in different countries. And I say this to a lot of my, my students, actually. I say there is a price you pay when you decide to embark upon a foreign reporting career, which is an impact on, on certain developments. And they can begin to snowball as you get older. And, and you can have lots and lots and lots of relationships. Um, I think that, that that is almost invariable. If you live a, 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 an open life where you're constantly willing to meet people and travel, you will get lots of relationships. But um, the, the, um, what it means is when, when I am back in the, in the UK, I very much devote my time and energy to, the, to a very a smaller group of people rather than a bigger group of people. Um, insofar as I, I'm very conscious of you know, letting my children uh, make sure I'm very central in their life when I'm, when I'm present. Um, the other flip side of it, in terms of sort of not being very good at things, is, um, I, I mean, I, I think the, the psychological toll of having now reported in sort of over 20 conflict zones and being witness to everything from genocide to femicide to extreme forms of violence, in, particularly in places like Mexico and, Latin, and Central America, which are, which are often underreported conflict zones, actually. But the levels of violence I've witnessed there have, have been truly horrific. Um, and I think that um, there comes a point where you begin to create in your own head a hierarchy of suffering, where you see somebody tweeting about how they felt offended by something or somebody might you know make a comment that this doesn't sit easily with them and unfortunately i've got now got this this army of ghosts behind me whose human rights have been violated on such a fundamental level that i probably have less empathy for people who might sort of say that they're sensibilities have been slightly offended by something yes um and and as a consequence um and i say this both for the right and the left because i think the right are very good at, at this but the notion of virtue signaling reside whilst my implicit 
ambition as a liberal reporter, somebody who wants to have compassion and empathy, is I I have probably less tolerance for virtue signaling than I may have done had I not witnessed where true horrors occur in terms of capacity. Um, and and I think going back to your original question about what you're not good at, I think the other problem is that if you do witness repeated suffering and repeated horrors and also travel widely. I mean, I've been to over 110 countries around the world and I've seen so much. One of the problems then is about um, then when you sit with somebody who's who's led a very different life and I'm not saying a better or a worse life, just a different life, but maybe a more contained life, the the areas of interconnectedness where you have similar things to talk about become sometimes a gulf too far and so i mean i i don't watch um you know i I know nothing about the kardashians as an example and and i probably should know more and my partner i i i've been gently you know people in the past have have commented on my lack of um my my lack of, of understanding of popular culture and and I think that that again is a, a a thing which you know some people might take for granted and they know they watch you know all the popular soaps and I just don't. Um, I think my 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 general like last night. <laughs> I I'm wa- not sure this is something to beat yourself up about, Ian. No, but but I think um, what it ultimately creates is a, is a challenge where uh, I was reading Matt Haig's writing recently, and Matt Haig obviously sells hugely, and um, yeah. I, I envy that lightness of touch that he has as a writer. Uh, and I think one of the problems of writing conflicts and human rights abuses is um, the subject matter begins to seep in and create a heaviness and a weight to your writing. And I think that that is um, ultimately the price you pay as a human rights reporter. Um, and and the, the people, people at Orwell... I think managed to both convey the horrors of war, but also managed to be incredibly readable. And um, I, I aspire towards that readability in my books, but I don't think I could write something like Matt Haig's writes, which is um, a more light touch analysis of the human condition. And I envy that in a way, because I think that is, a, you know, the, a, the, the true writer should be able to touch on all experiences. And sometimes if the shadows of your past loom too large, um, it means you can't go and write about, I don't know, uh, like Tom Cox does, write about the British natural environment. Um, and I would love to write about the British natural environment because it is, it is such a wonder, like write about badgers or rabbits. And I spend a lot of time walking in the countryside. But I, don't, I sometimes feel that that wouldn't be me because I'm so marked by my past experiences of conflict. Yes. I also think that part of it's innate and part of it's a coping mechanism too. Some people's go-to response to the trauma and the negativity that they experience is humour. And for others, that just isn't possible. No. And and um. When I was at university, I was a member of the stand-up comedy group Footlights at, at Cambridge, 
Um, and I used to do stand-up comedy. I used to sell whiskey in Malaysia and in the weekends do stand-up comedy in KL. Um, and there was a real lightness to me then. And I don't think I have that capacity for humour uh, as easily now, particularly in my writing. And of course, um, there are moments where you want to write uh, something in a light style, but then you begin to have a moral obligation to the very things you're writing about that means that you... Uh, repress that lightness in you because you have to have respect. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what I, I'd say what I'm, I'm probably not good at is creating a sufficient enough barrier between uh, the experiences of the life one has lived and the capacity for renewal and, and maybe even becoming, trying to experiment and do different things. Um, one of the, the when I was in Israel recently, I, um, I I visited the the National Museum there, and there was a Paul Klee painting there of this um, little clockwork angel called the Angelus Novus, and the Austrian Jewish philosopher Walter Benjamin wrote about Angelus Novus, talking about this angel that was caught in the winds of time, and it was forced forever to look. Uh, backwards in time as it was being propelled into the future by what we term as progress. And the angel's view of, the, of, of what had occurred was this mountain of harm. This, it, all the angel could see was all the tragedies of the world. And I worry sometimes that if my perennial focus is on human rights abuse, and I think this applies to lots of people in the, my, my world, is that you're consistently weighed down by that. And, you know, Marie Colvin, um, who more than anyone would look back into the atrocities of the past, you know, was tr profoundly tormented by that. Um, you know, she would drink, she would uh, place herself in unjustifiably dangerous situations, etc. And, and I know quite a few journalists who, who do that. And, um it, it there almost becomes a grappling at a point where you're constantly looking towards the past, trying to remedy the harm, and you're invariably impotent to do that. The, the past cannot be uh, addressed. And you might give through your reporting some salve towards the present. You may, I, I, I for instance, I, I interviewed one of the mothers uh, of... Uh, a, a young man who was killed in the bombings in Manchester, the suicide attack in Manchester. And um, she has messaged me since and saying how it was very cathartic to read her story through my words and my interviews. And that I've always found very, very powerful that you can, as a journalist, help someone allay their own ghosts to rest. Um, but I, I think that the, the, the danger of a lot of human rights journalists, if you spend years and years, is that um, over time an impotence begins to form at the kernel of your being because you think, I've done all this work and yet still the world rotates, still violence proliferates, still harm is present. And at that point, at that moment, there, there needs to be a philosophical addressing of... What, why am I doing what I'm doing? And on the one hand, you can't easily reform yourself because you're so marked by your past experiences. And then on the other hand, uh, you begin to wonder whether 
your actions as a human rights reporter are as impactful as the dreams you once hoped they would be. Um, but having said that, you know, I, I've managed, I think, on occasion to work on stories that truly did have a global impact. I worked with WikiLeaks in unearthing the horrors and abuses of military actions in Iraq and the Iraq war logs. Um, I worked with Chris Woods to set up the first ever drone analysis of attacks by the US government and drones in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I truly believe that those have had impacts. Let's talk about that a bit more. What concrete positive impact has resulted from that journalism? Well, I think first and foremost, if you, it's difficult to sort of say you, you can claim a high ground on anything, but up until the point where we discovered that the CIA had lied that they hadn't killed any civilians in Pakistan, and we revealed almost 300 people had been killed by their drone strikes. Up until that point, nobody really debated the drone issue of, of Reaper drones blowing up remote parts of, of the Af Afghan-Pakistan border. And since that time, I think drones have become front and center of lots of Hollywood debates, war, war films, lots of political debates, lots of journalism. Now, of course, it would be naive to claim that our work was the only thing that created that. But it was the first expose, and I think a great deal followed from that. And so when um, both Obama and, and actually to, following on, tightening up some of Obama's uh, legislation, Donald Trump, although he did end up loosening it, um, the US government began to record publicly civilian deaths from their airstrikes and um th that was that's the first time they've done that the we've tried to use that uh political reform in the uk because the uk government does not have a civilian casualty recording unit at the heart of its military operations and that's what we're trying to lobby for um but and and so for instance uh I've, I've repeatedly uncovered that uh, the UK government claims it's killed 4,500 militants in Iraq and Syria through airstrikes and only claims one civilian death. And this is just absolutely ludicrous that you can claim that sort of uh, distance. If you're going to use big bombs from the skies, you're going to kill more civilians. Uh, it's just an inevitability. And they won't admit to it. But I think that the, dr the drone work that we did do then leads towards that being a fundamental discussion. I'd like to take you back because you spoke about your uneasiness of the kind of impact that you're making compared to your original dreams. What was your original motivation for getting into journalism? Um, I had a very peripatetic childhood. So my, my father was in the British military and we ended up living in 19 homes before I was 21. It was um, a very, very varied childhood. And I, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of it um, abroad and, and, and or always with the notion of travel at the forefront. And I think I wanted initially to try and work out how can you have a career where you can use both words, but also, you know, this perennial desire to, to travel. So initially, I didn't, I actually went into filmmaking with an idea of seeing the world. 
and I used to do travel documentaries and I used to do a whole series of sort of arts driven documentaries with an international flavor. Um, and then I pitched an idea. Um, I was sat in the BBC uh, doing a, a series of, of films with Jonathan Cleese called The Human Face. And John Cleese wasn't the easiest person to work with. And I wasn't particularly happy doing this sort of um, documentaries. And I was desperate to sort of be somewhere else. Um, and I saw a little article in the BBC's magazine, uh, which was for these scholarships that they're awarding, called the Anassis Bursary, after Jacqueline Anassis. And I um, sent off a, an application claiming that what I wanted to do was do a documentary about this ancient art of shark calling in the South Pacific. Um, because years before, I'd been to Papua New Guinea um, and met an Irish priest there who told me about this sort of animistic religion where men would go into the shallows of the reefs off the, the coast of New Island province in Papua New Guinea, and then they would use um, shells to froth the water um, and draw in mako sharks, and then the shark would align itself next to the canoes on which it was set, and then they would lasso the sharks with these uh, tentrils. And I thought this would be a remarkable documentary to do, so nobody had ever done it. So I, I applied to this bursary and they gave me £10,000 to, to go and report on shark calling around the world. So I first flew down to South Africa and I swam with great whites off the coast there and then flew to Papua New Guinea and then learned how to be a shark caller and I caught a shark and, in, off the island of New Island province and we, we let it go afterwards. But after that, I got on board where the next part of shark calling was, was in the Solomon Islands. And I got on board the plane in Papua New Guinea and I had been out of contact for around six weeks. Um, and when I was on this plane, there was nobody else on the plane. And I, we took off and eventually I called over the usher and I said, um, can you explain to me why there's nobody else on this plane? Why is, why is this so empty? And he said, well, this is a relief plane to pick up uh, all the refugees from the Solomon Islands. And I said, what? And he said, well, there's a civil war uh, between the Malaitans and the Guadalcanalians in the Solomon Islands. And this is basically the last plane flying into Honiara uh, in order to pick up um, the Europeans who are living there because it was too violent. And uh, so I kind of arrived on uh, in the middle of a civil war. Uh, and it was a really bloody civil war. People were beheaded in hospitals. There were shootings in the streets. It was... You know, all the Westerners and anyone who was an expat working in the Western aid organizations and had left. And I was, you know, witness to some really horrific violence or the after effects of violence there. And I began filing a little bit for AP and the BBC when I was out there. And then, you know, that, that really was me crossing a Rubicon. I think once you've reported on a civil war, going back to doing art documentaries at the BBC was, was a bit problematic. So when I eventually got back, after also landing in Fiji, where there was a military coup going on and reporting on that as well, I eventually flew back to London and I, I, I went and pretty much begged senior producers of the BBC in the, arts, in the uh, current affairs department to take me on. And um, I managed to get a job with this reporter called Donald McIntyre, who did undercover reporting. 
and I began to do undercover reporting uh, as part of uh, the BBC Current Affairs team, and and that was that's now you know twenty twenty five years ago almost or twenty four years ago, and so ever since then I've I've really just focused on on current affairs. But I started off uh, doing rather light hearted travel documentaries around the world, which was fun. Uh, but uh, the further you get down the rabbit hole of conflict, the more that conflict defines you. And it's so clear from reading Gun Baby Gun that uh, a while ago you clearly decided that there was some higher calling when it came to journalism and making an impact. There's this one quote which uh, stood out for me. When journalists descend on a sleeping town where lives have been shattered by the sharp retort of gunfire, they should tell themselves that they are there to report on these horrors for one reason and one reason only, to try to stop this happening again. Not to titillate, but to warn. How promising do you think journalism is as a path for someone who wants to use their career to do as much good as they can? I've, I've often been um, struck by that phrase about the the absence of journalism would be more acutely felt than the presence of it. In other words, you know, I think sometimes the, the reporting of conflicts, the reporting of harm might become a backdrop to many people's lives and may just become a dark murmur on the morning news. But if we never heard of these horrors occurring, then who how would we know that they wouldn't escalate into something more terrible? Um, the The... The journey I've taken from making travel documentaries to then now running a, a, a basically an observatory of human rights abuses has um, has been one that's led me to one firm conclusion that um, and and this is in, sort of tied up with a desire to, for an investigative journalism. But you do need to follow the money, um, and I'm I fervently believe that. Uh, one of the fundamental needs to address violence over there elsewhere is looking at the f- the, the drivers of global violence. And, and obviously, on a limited level, you're talking about the violations of the arms trade. So in both my books, but also generally day to day, I've often interrogated the challenges of who do we export arms to and how the US is the world's largest exporter of firearms in the world and what violence flows from that and how the UK positions itself certainly well it claims it's the second largest arms exporter in the world but you know and, and has that as a sort of bravado but I'm, I'm concerned I'm concerned not only if you're a major arms exporter um, you know there is no moral there's a moral sum game that probably comes out of that is that the violence you export over time comes back to haunt you as I said before but the other thing which I think is is important to note is that um, we live in, in in a world where the capitalist supply chain is stretched incredibly thin. So, you know, it's, it's often pointed out that the, the iPhone or the, the smartphone you might be holding might contain rare earth metals for, sourced in China through potential prison labor, or there might be elements... Uh, you know, within that, the, the component parts of that were that might have been sourced in uh, the Congo with child miners or exploitation occurs very far away 
from the end product. So we may hold things. It may even be wrapped up within an ethical framing, but the the way in which that product was produced might have human rights abuses at its very source. But it's so distanced from us that we tend not to engage with it. And I think that the thing which I encourage young journalists to do is to analyze um, the, the, the connections between our daily engagement with the world and how those connections um, impact places far away. So, you know, meat production causing deforestation in, in Brazil. Um, you know, your, your, your knee-jerk choice of cleaning products in uh, your supermarket having an impact on palm oil production in Indonesia and the devastation of the forest there. Um, the, 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 the challenges we have in terms of we may want to lead an ethical life, but we have this barrier between our decisions and being informed about what is ethical. You know, when we pick up um, something that's fair trade, do we know that the company that produces that is also benefiting from from huge amounts of non-fair trade products? And so I believe that in order to lead an ethical life, a moral life, it's not just about doing no harm to others directly, but it's also ensuring that we try and lead a life where we do no harm to others in our purchases and our engagements and our investments. And in order to do that, you need to be informed. So the more I go in and confront the realities of human rights abuses elsewhere, the more I become quite obsessed about company infrastructures in the UK and you know different companies and who sources to what and this disconnect really that occurs between the the notion that we 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 our actions have no consequence through our purchases and the reality of what those uh, purchases really do um and 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 then you end up challenging fundamental government narratives so the uk government's very quick to talk about to condemn myanmar for instance um, and yet we have a defense attache we've placed in Myanmar, whose primary goal, it seems, is to try and sell arms to the Myanmar government. In fact, the UK government has exported arms to 29 of the 30 countries on the human rights embargo list that it, it, it itself holds. So these sort of blatant hypocrisies and the shift between the noble narratives of you know, Britain as an ethical country and the hard realities of what our what our commerce does and what our government does, I think needs to be opened up and exposed as much as possible. And Ian, you work with young people, of course, a lot through your work um, at Birkbeck University. And you also work with a lot of volunteers who are wanting to get into investigative journalism at Action on Armed Violence. They obviously have an array of possible directions that they could go in with their career and with their life. Is journalism a good path, do you think, for making an impact, relatively speaking? And under what conditions, if so? So I think that there's been an increasing need for journalism to become more than itself. And what you're seeing in a lot of NGOs is... um, the establishment of investigation units. So Greenpeace has one, Amnesty has one, and and increasingly 
um, people working in the sort of NGO third sector are doing investigations. Liberty, human rights work. Exactly. And, and I think that that is a consequence of the fact, partly the fact that Br- the British press is dominated by you know, a, a group of effective, it's owned by billionaire proprietors who have vested interests in other com- companies and concerns who also push quite a strong political narrative in their papers. And that might denude from certain investigations. Investigations are very expensive. The media model has been challenged fundamentally by the digital world and NGOs are increasingly filling that gap to provide data and evidence. And that's that, that's just a reality. Um, so camp- journalism, investigative journalism is increasingly becoming campaigning investigative journalism. There needs to be a campaigning element. And I think that that's been the fundamental shift in the last 20 years. Whereas once upon a time, I think a journalist might just present a story and that story would reside in of itself. All too often, we're getting people presenting stories and they're just not landing. You may be the most compelling story, but, you know, left swipe, left swipe, left swipe, all of a sudden you're onto another news story. Yeah. And that kind of amnesia and... Um, lack of detail and attention that a lot of people hold for news now um, is uh, detrimental, I think, to the operation of society. And uh, you you can argue that one of the reasons why we we seem to be in a situation where there's, you know, some serious questions about accountability and lies on the part of British politicians is because even though there's been repeated revelation after revelation it doesn't stick and i think that's a real frustration for lots of people but i i really believe that there is um an answer to this and that's through campaigning moral investigative journalism that is rooted in hard evidence and strives to be as politically independent as possible um you know a lot of people sort of suggest that if we've had a a conservative government for over 10 years now uh, in various forms And you can be accused of being a left-wing journalist simply because all you're doing is critiquing a right-wing government, as opposed to saying that you're as impartial as you can be. It just so happens that the the power that you're critiquing is right-wing. And I think the answer to this needs to be campaigning journalism. And I'm doing this in two ways. So on the one hand, at Birkbeck, I'm striving to set up something called the Centre for Human Rights Reporting, which would be a a unit that basically analyses the shift of where human rights reporting is at the moment, where it's going, and what impact it has, and what and and how the 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 area the area of human rights reporting is itself transforming and changing over time, because there isn't a centre for human rights reporting anywhere in the world that exquisitely looks at that particular area of sort of NGO stroke uh, investigative human rights work uh, as a kind of an academic thing. That's so exciting. And at the same time, I'm, I'm also running an investigations unit at a group called All the Citizens. Um, and what we, we are is we're, we're a very small unit, but we're, we're, we're engaging with lots and lots of citizen investigators, citizens who basically are not journalists, but we seek to train them up, give them tools like freedom of information, give them a direction on what we want interrogated and letting them run us it. And the outcome of that, for instance, is we spent quite a lot of time looking at uh, opacity in government and a lack of transparency in government communications. I'm very concerned that government special advisors 
are increasingly using encrypted software on their phones, like WhatsApp, to conduct the business of government, that those communications cannot be freedom of information requested because they're not recorded. And so all the citizens is actually putting in a legal challenge to the government that WhatsApp messaging and other encrypted messaging like Signal needs to be recorded by the cabinet office or by the ministries. And, and that is, I think, an example of you create a body of evidence of proof that we know that special advisors are using WhatsApp messages, and then you try and take it to a legal challenge. Um, and I'm trying to do the same um, in through uh, from my charity action on armed violence. So one of my concerns is the number of special forces being used today around the world. Um, we've charted um, the UK sending special forces to country after country after country around the world in the last 10 years, all of which is not accountable, not, not published, not talked about by the government. It's all secretive. And what I'm trying to do is a legal challenge for that and say, actually, we as citizens demand to know where our military forces are being used in lethal engagement globally because they are causing harm in our name. And I'm going to be taking that as a legal challenge. So I think investigative journalism and law are increasingly finding themselves sitting in the same bed. And that's, that's, that's a necessary truth. How can listeners support your work? So if you really want to be an investigative reporter and you feel you want to investigate, follow us on at all the citizens um, and then um, you can DM us if you want to be um, a supporter there. Um, I also run occasional courses in investigative journalism at the Frontline Club in London. So you can subscribe to the Frontline Club. And if I'd run a day course, come along and I can teach you all the tr tricks of the trade. Um, and also you can sign up to Action on Armed Violence, which is aoav.org.uk. Um, and you get our, our mailing letters. And of course, you know, you can donate if you so desire. Um, or, and this is the, the interesting thing about uh, being a writer, is what you ultimately want. The reason you've written books is you want people to buy the books. So you could buy my book, Gun Baby Gun, or The Price of Paradise. Um, and um, if on reading those, you want to volunteer at Action on Nonviolence, you can drop me an email for either website. Our guest on this episode has been Ian Overton. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Storytelling for Impact. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy of Ian's book, Price of Paradise, described by The Guardian as a provocative and timely exploration of the motivations of the modern-day suicide bomber, all you have to do is head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for this show, and send me a screenshot at the email address in the show notes. All and any reviews are so, so gratefully received. Our next guest is Finlay Wynn, an award-winning former Reuters journalist who was born and educated in Myanmar, and has reported extensively on humanitarian issues, climate change and food security. We'll be looking at whether the current system of foreign correspondents, also known as parachute journalists, is due for a shake-up.